Well, this past Wednesday, February 21st, uh, Billy Graham entered into the reward that he preached about and led others to faith in Christ about. And this morning, I just wanted to do something a little differently. Normally, we take a passage and a text and work through it. But um, his life was significant, not only in um, American Christianity, but in Christian history. And I can't think of uh, really anybody that, you know, I might would just set aside an entire Sunday to build an entire message around other than Billy Graham. Because really, apart or since the Apostle Paul there really has not been any greater evangelist in Christian history than Billy Graham. And so this morning, we're not going to uh, induct him into sainthood, okay? Uh, but the Bible, the scripture there in Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. And I think that's a fitting scripture of what I believe is good to do when uh, we reflect upon his life. We're really reflecting upon the Christ of his life. And this morning we're going to attempt that a little bit uh, as I was preparing this. There was one part in which this was very easy because... There's just so much to draw from. You know, you just think, I don't have enough time. But, but there's also so much that would be impossible to exhaust out of his life. This isn't a eulogy. This isn't a funeral service. This really is for us to point to Jesus as I believe that his life and testimony and interviews and everything that uh, we know and have seen about him always pointing to Christ. Now, if you were born, really, I would say from the 80s on, I'm not sure you really understand the impact of Billy Graham's life because, really, uh, he retired, uh, quote-unquote retired, in 2005, but it was just uh, as you were coming perhaps into teenhood or adulthood or whatever, his ministry was beginning to uh, change in his age. And his emphasis. I need a little more light up here. I'm, I'm, yeah. There you go. I'm, I'm getting old, and I'm starting to not see as good. But, um, but, uh, and so I'm not really sure that you know because a lot of the pictures that we might would see of Billy Graham and his, I mean, my goodness, he's 99. He had a, he turned 99 November 7th of of last year, and so he was entering into his hundredth year. And so most of the pictures and videos of things have been done. In the past 23, you know, as, a, as of a very older man. And, we, and, and so if you grew up in the 80s on, you kind of look back the way you might look back to a former president or somebody. I know he's famous. I know he's important. But, uh, but, the, but for the rest of us, baby boomers on and maybe a little further back, uh, we remember watching on television when the networks, NBC, you know, whatever, I mean, they would, uh, you know, allow, of course, the Billy Graham Evangelist Association bought time there. They weren't giving it away, but just the fact that they would allow their network to clear the deck of 
programming during the week to air sometimes two or three nights of a Billy Graham evangelistic you know, special of him preaching uh, is significant. And as, as a kid, I mean, I'm 56, and I don't remember a time in my life that Billy Graham was not somehow in my, on my radar screen culturally and obviously in pursuing ministry and all those things. He's been someone who, uh, uh, you know, I can't help but think of Isaiah 6 when I think Isaiah, uh, uh, when he said, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a king in Israel for 40-plus some odd years. And we've never known. And so in the year that Billy Graham died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he was still on the throne. His servant had entered his rest. And so this morning, I just want us to... Uh, we're not, this isn't a biography. I'm not going to just uh, give you a history lesson. But what we want to do is just draw some principles that we can learn from. And we can follow that scripture in Hebrews uh, 13, 7 uh, that says to follow their example. Billy Graham was a country boy. He grew up on a dairy farm near Charlotte, North Carolina, where he lived uh, the latter part of his life. Gallup poll and other polls always seem to have Billy Graham in the top 10 of any of the most admired people or Americans. He was always in the top numbers over 50 times. He knew, think about this, he, he knew and was acquainted with every president from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. That's a big deal. I mean, that's pretty significant of that. Uh, he preached, listen to this, he preached to estimated over 215 million people. Not television. He personally preached to 215 million people. That's not even counting, you know, the television and the media and all that that went around the world in 185 countries. Uh, There's a little bit of a Florida connection. You may not realize it, but he went to Bible school in Tampa. Now, he later transferred to Wheaton College near Chicago, and, uh, but he went to school, Bible school, in, uh, at Florida Bible Institute that now is Trinity College, and uh, there's a story of him going out with, uh, as a lot of times you had to do when I was in school, and you'd have to go out witnessing. I remember my first task was to show up at 7.30 Sunday morning at the county jail in Columbia, South Carolina. Here's a news flash. They're not in the mood to hear you, okay? They're not sitting around drinking coffee, waiting for preacher boys to come in. No, we walked in between the jail cells and waking them up, knocking. Okay, that's a whole different story. So I get, but he was on the streets of Tampa, and one story he told, he was witnessing to a guy, uh, a bar owner, and the bar owner threw him out, literally. And uh, so there's a little bit of Florida-Tampa connection there. He was born again at a revival in 1934. We'll say a little bit more about that. Uh, there's interesting, uh, we, we have Moody Radio in Florida, and that's a part of our media culture. And some of you may be familiar on Sunday nights, uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer hosts a program called Songs in the Night. Anybody ever heard of that program? It's on Sunday nights. Well, Billy Graham, as a young man starting out in ministry, uh, began to be host of that program in Chicago around 1943. And as a result of that, uh, he began to preach and travel. And again, doors opened up beyond that. Uh, his last crusade was in Flushing Meadows, 
uh, Corona Park, New York, which is uh, near and outside the city of New York in 2005, and he preached over 230,000 people on that last crusade in 2005. In my office, if you come into my office here at the church behind the door, I have a poster that, was, that they made for that crusade. It was his last crusade, and I have that uh, on my wall as a remembrance uh, of, of his life and his encouragement. Uh, he entered into heaven on Wednesday morning, about 7.30-ish, something like that. But he always made this quote. It wasn't original with him. I think D.L. Moody but, uh, originated it, but he applied it and said it himself. And you may have heard it in these recent days. And Billy Graham said, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address I will have gone into the presence of God. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a testimony that is. As Billy Graham was starting out, uh, probably the, the most, uh, the beginning, like where and how did that begin, where he became kind of a national figure and prominence? I mean, a country boy growing up on a dairy farm in North Carolina, how does he get from there to where we're taking a whole Sunday service to talk about his life. How does that happen? Well, in God's providence, there's many pieces there, but uh, in, uh, when he left Chicago, he began to travel and, and do crusades for Youth for Christ. That's still an organization that's still around. It was a youth uh, ministry. Remember, this is 1949 now, and uh, we've just come out of World War II, and the baby boomers, uh, babies are being birthed, and the youth and all that is exploding across the country. And so youth ministries really began to blossom, and Youth for Christ was one of the biggest evangelical youth ministries uh, that uh, was going on at the time. How many of you remember ever hearing about Youth for Christ? And, and okay, so um, so he began to do crusades with that. But really, the the spark that that began kind of this national prominence uh, began. In 1949, September, when he went to Los Angeles, some people had brought him in there to hold a crusade, and of course, you know, they put up a massive tent, and this is interesting, is that, that he was only supposed to come and preach for three weeks, but it stretched out to eight weeks as people started to show up in droves, and over 350,000 people attended that Los Angeles crusade in 1949. Now, hold that thought there. There was a man who was a, uh, at that time, he would have been the equivalent of CNN, MSNBC, Fox News combined. His name was William Randolph Hearst. Anybody ever heard of Patty Hearst? Got kidnapped? Well, that's her great-grandfather, okay? Or grandfather, maybe. William Randolph Hearst was a... Uh, owner of 30, 40 newspapers across the country, all in major cities. Now, at that time, people read. They actually read books and words. Newspapers was the primary medium. I thought uh, Lynn would appreciate that, uh, who is uh, an editor at the Ledger there. But anyway, so I digress. But, but so the newspaper industry was massive. There was a morning newspaper there was an evening newspaper, and if something really happened, they would publish a special edition newspaper, okay? And 
today, well, we won't comment, you know, things have changed. Media has changed. But I just want you to get the sense. So William Randolph Hearst, who had this network of newspapers, told his editors, and, and Hearst was known as kind of a bit of a sensationalist, okay? He, he liked to kind of put stuff out there kind of that, you know, would get people's attention because guess what? He wanted to sell newspapers, right? He wanted to make money. So Graham, it wasn't that he was necessarily a, a Graham fan, but he saw Graham as some kind of attention-getting phenomenon, and he told his editors across all the networks of his, um, of his newspapers this quote. He said, Puff Graham. What that meant was give him some publicity, promote him. Isn't it amazing God can use Egypt? Isn't it amazing he can use unbelievers to do his will and, and be providentially working? We, God used a Pharaoh, right? Right? So God can use anybody. And so here he was, William Randolph Hearst, and gave Billy Graham all of a sudden overnight this massive publicity. Newspapers in New York and Chicago and Atlanta were you know, this massive crusade going on in Los Angeles. And, of course, you can say the rest is history after that. So this morning, as we kind of just put that a little bit in context of Billy Graham and his life, I want us to zero in and find out, and just looking at that Scripture as our foundation, Hebrews 13, 7, what are some things, what are the good things that has come from his life and what are some of those things that we can follow? That's what we want to look at this morning. So before we begin, let's pray, okay? Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. And Lord, we thank you for lives that we can celebrate and honor before you as lives that uh, are worthy of Jesus and uh, the honor that Jesus uh, was exemplified in their life. So Father, this morning, help us and guide us by your word today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you, and again, they're, they're, it sounds long, but we'll go through them relatively quickly. And at the end, I'm going to play about a three-minute clip from Billy Graham, and that will, we will allow him to give our invitation this morning, okay? So first of all, there's seven things, and I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. And they're, uh, if you survey the Internet, so many people, I, I wasn't sure. I'd kind of thought about doing this, and then I um, saw something. Uh, I, I like Twitter. And I uh, saw something from Dr. Jack Graham out of Prestonwood Baptist in Dallas. You know Jack Graham, he's on the radio and all, a great, great Bible teacher. And he said, hey, this Sunday, and he basically gave a similar title. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. That's what I need. I'm going to do that. So I thought if Jack Graham can do it, no relation to Billy, but uh, I thought we're going to do it too. So let me give you these seven principles of his, that just glean out of probably thousands, but seven principles that I think we can celebrate the good and follow his example. Number one, and these aren't necessarily in any particular order, uh, number one is that he demonstrated humility. He demonstrated humility. If you read biographies or anything about his life or listen to people uh, that knew him, one of the things that is just runs through common, every single uh, word or testimony about that is that Billy Graham was humble. He never considered himself a big shot. In his heart and mind, he was still that country boy from North Carolina, Ann Graham Lotz. Anybody ever heard of Ann Graham Lotz? Uh, she is his daughter, and she talks about, and I had a quote I wasn't going to read. I'll paraphrase it. talks about how Daddy, as she obviously called him, was just as comfortable in blue jeans and a comfortable shirt eating a hamburger from McDonald's 
drinking sweet tea. Thank you, Jesus. You know, so we know that that's good. But he was just and 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 the one thing that ran through all the again people that converse with him and and there's lots of things on the. Uh, on the internet of people who just feel kind of like I do. You just feel compelled. Uh, but some of these people actually met him. I never met Billy Graham. I met Franklin Graham. And believe it or not, I baptized a Presbyterian who was a student pastor that was going to preach uh, the following week in Billy Graham's home church, and he was for sure Billy Graham was going to be there. This is a long time back. So that's about as close as I ever got to Billy Graham, okay? Um, so... Uh, uh, but they all said that anytime you're around him, now listen to this, because this, I see this a lot, not only just in, among each other, but I see this with leaders too. When you're around Billy Graham, if I had an opportunity to meet and sit with him, guess what we're going to talk about? I'm going to drive him, they're, you know, they're going to have to call Franklin to throw me out because I just want to talk and ask questions, right? He, wasn't in, he wanted to find out about you. He asked questions about you. He wanted to know what God was doing with you. And so many people were like, uh, were, were just like taken back, like, I'm a nobody. I'm with Billy Graham, and he wants to know about what I'm doing and about my life. And let me tell you something. God, and I'm sure you have too, but I've been around a lot of leaders, church leaders, and sometimes I'm amazed about the egotistical nature of some of the some of the leaders that I, I respect and I've been around in different parts been around different people and you get around them and you might spend 20 minutes with them and you know what you're going to spend 19 point whatever minutes talking about them what they're doing what they wrote what they did what they did this hey you doing okay okay god bless you bye do you hear what I'm saying he always steered it to what he wanted to draw out your life. He won that, and that's humility. That's a right perspective of who you are, and that's something that I believe we can celebrate and emulate. It was always about others, and it wasn't about him. Philippians 2 3 says, and how he embodied this it says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. That's Philippians 2 3, and we can celebrate that. Secondly, not only did he demonstrate humility, but secondly, he was focused. Billy Graham kept the main thing, the main thing. He was a focused man. Not only was he focused in his uh, message because it was about Christ. It was about the gospel. It was, it, I mean, it didn't matter. If you remember, there would be times when he'd be on Larry King. Remember Larry King? interviews, or you'd be watching. Uh, we've got some issues with the lights, but don't, don't worry about it. You're not having a stroke. Uh, it's just, it, we, we changed our lighting a little bit, so don't, don't be, you know, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. But you may see it flitter and whatever. But on Larry King, and you can go back. Remember, I remember one time I said, okay, he was on Johnny Carson. Now that, you know, that sets you back. Johnny Carson, you know, and it was amazing how no matter what they wanted to talk about, he in his gracious warmth, he always steered it back. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. There is a way to God, and it's through Christ. He always turned it back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he did it in a way that had warmth, it had compassion, it had focus in it. And I remember, now some of you may not remember, this, you might remember his movies, but Woody Allen in the 60s had a talk show. 
And Billy Graham, this is YouTube, and it's really fascinating to see a smart aleck, cynical Woody Allen interviewing Billy Graham, but you see the gracious smile, focused compassion that Billy Graham has, even in a den of lions, of hostility. And that, I believe, is because he was focused on the message. He was asked, what is his favorite scripture? And I have it on the front of your bulletin. For God's soul of the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He would always bring it back to the cross. He once said this, quote, God proved his love on the cross when Christ hung and bled and died. It was God saying to the world, I love you. Another thing that he was uh, focused upon uh, and kept the main thing, the main thing, is that he, as an evangelist, kept focus on the essentials of Christianity and didn't get sidetracked on non-essentials. Now, what was his primary role in calling? He was an, an evangelist, right? The Bible says in Ephesians 4.11, and God gave uh, some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. As an evangelist, as a way, as one who would have a broad appeal, he kept his focus on the essentials of core Christianity. He didn't get sidetracked on things that didn't make any difference. So not only was he focused on his message, on the content of his message, but he was also focused on the calling that he had, okay? This is still part of someone who was focused. He's still focused on the calling that he had. And uh, I found this little interesting little tidbit. He always received offers to, we're so glad you guys are here today. Let's welcome them into church this morning. Glad you're here. We saved you a seat. We've been waiting on you. You're late, but you're, you're here, and we're glad you're here. We waited on you at your seat. God bless you. I'm just kidding you. But he was focused on his calling because he, he had offers to run for Senate, run for governor. But you know what? He all turned it all down. I read that even in the 1950s, NBC offered him a $5 million contract to get involved in some kind of entertainment thing. Now, if that is in 1950s, $5 million, what do you think that's worth by today's numbers? A lot, maybe double at least. But you know what? He turned it down. You know why he turned it down? Because he was focused and he knew what he was called to do. Folks, we get distracted and disjointed because we get off focus of what we're called to do. Even in the church, we've got to keep the main thing, the main thing of what it is that God has called us to do. I like how this fits with what Paul said. He said, I, he said no, dear brothers and sisters, he talks about I haven't achieved it. But, one, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Third principle that we can draw from is that he demonstrated courage when it counted. Let me say that again. He demonstrated courage when it counted. Now, sadly, the things that have gone down in South Florida that we're hearing now more and more, and again, we want to be careful. We don't want to rush to judgment because we don't know, but it is disturbing how there were officers that apparently did not, and again, all we're knowing is what the media says, so I'm, I'm, hopefully there's another side of this story, but it's 
uh, we, we find that at least one and maybe possibly others who did not enter into that building when that shooter was active, and they were, they were trained and prepared, okay? It doesn't count if afterwards, when the, when the army shows up, that you get engaged. What counts is to show courage when it counts. Now, here's where I, I suggest with Billy Graham and his boldness. One, in his message... And, uh, and again, I don't want to get too far off into this, but in historical terms, Billy Graham was a titaned figure in evangelical Christianity in America and around the world because when he came on the scene, what we would call evangelical Christianity, that's more of our, our tradition. We're not Catholic, but evangelicals. And I know that word gets misused and bounced around a little bit. But it essentially means a, an understanding of the authority of Scripture, that it's through Christ alone and the gospel, those things that uh, we hold dear. But that was not what was the majority view when Billy Graham began to start his ministry. You had mainline denominations, and I'm not going to name them, because it, but the, the organization itself and their seminaries and schools, uh, they began to depart from the core truths of Christianity. And so there was this vacuum, and Billy Graham certainly didn't do it all by himself, but he was somebody who came in and began to draw uh, other leaders, and he was used in starting schools and seminaries. There's probably very few ministries that are prominent. I'm thinking like Campus Crusade and Wycliffe, and you just go on and on, that somewhere do not have Billy Graham's fingerprints all over it in some measure. And plus, he was a great example for people who did believe in the authority of Scripture, and they believed in the... Um, there goes my phone that I never turned on, so... Um, and I won't do it now, so... Otherwise, we can start 40 minutes from this point. Wouldn't that be exciting? Um, but they could look at Billy Graham and say, yes, he's saying what I believe. And so he was a real catalyst to turn a significant uh, uh, tide in America and ultimately around the world uh, back to the gospel. And so many parachurch, those are non-denominational kind of organizations that began to flourish under his leadership. Uh, and so we can, again, there's a lot more of that. But here's what I want to get back to this courage, is he never buckled and compromised that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the way to God. For years and years, he had behind him a banner behind him, and it was uh, John 14, 6, that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Billy Graham never buckled under saying, well, Jesus is a way among many. He is a truth in many truths that are out there. He didn't believe, no, he stayed true. And listen, there was times in which it would have been tough and it would have been easy with the pressure and saying, Dr. Graham, can't you see how much wider your ministry would be if you just would soften a little bit? He never did. He never did. There was boldness. But this is what I find something that I hope that if you don't know this, you need to know this. And if you don't remember anything else, you need to remember this. And this, to me, highlights his courage. In the 1950s, we were in a... Uh, our nation was rabidly racist. There's still racism today. Let's don't kid ourselves. But it was rabidly racist. Some of you may not know these terms, Jim Crow laws. 
in which African Americans had to go through separate restrooms, separate hotels, go to the back of the diner to get their food, weren't allowed in there, okay? Hopefully we're we're conversing on, on history a little bit. 1950s, the civil rights really began to blossom around 61, 60, and on with uh, Kennedy certainly giving more attention to it and Lyndon Johnson, the signing of the Civil Rights Act. That was the 60s. In the 50s, it wasn't quite such a popular thing for a white man to take a stand. But guess who took a stand? Billy Graham took a stand. He was going to lead a crusade in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he told the ushers to take down the barriers that separated the white and the blacks, and they said no. And Billy Graham says, well, I'm not going to preach there. And eventually they did. And in the 1950s, not when it was in vogue and kind of a you know, thing in the 60s, in the 1950s, he integrated his crusades, and there was not a separate section of black and white in his crusades. He told a white audience this, quote, We have been proud and thought we were better than any other race and other people. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to stumble into hell because of our pride. He said there is no scriptural basis for segregation. The ground at the foot of the cross is level for all. Now, he said that when it took courage to say that. Now, let me go a little step further. You may not know this. In 1955, uh, one of the, uh, remember 1949 was that Los Angeles revival? 1955 took that on steroids when he did a New York crusade in New York City in 1955. And he invited prominent African-American leaders, and in 1955, he invited a not-so-well-known man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. to join him in the pulpit for this 16-week revival in New York City where 2.3 million people gathered at Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, and Times Square in New York City in 1955. In his autobiography, Billy Graham says, which, by the way, is called, not surprisingly, here I am. Is that what it's called? What's the, what's the hymn we're doing? Just as I am. Well, here I am, just as I am. <laughs> I knew as soon as that came out of my mouth. See, that's what happens when you say things that aren't in your notes. Just as I am. See, I'll get to edit that out so everybody thinks I'm really smart. Um, but in 1950, or not, he, he said this in that period. He says that he and Martin Luther King developed a close friendship, and he was eventually one of the few people who referred to Martin Luther King. You know what? Martin Luther King changed his name. You know what his birth name was? Michael King. And Billy Graham was one of the few close friends that could call him Mike because that was what close friends to Dr. King uh, could call him, and Billy Graham had that relationship. Now, I did not know this until I was reading some things this week. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King was arrested. He'd be arrested later, but he was arrested for a a march in Birmingham, Alabama. This is 1963. Guess who put up the bail money to to see that Dr. King was released? Billy Graham. Now, did he put that out on banners? Was that on the magazines? No. That was the humility. Why did he do it? He did it when it counted, when it was costly, when you had white, racist, 
so-called ministers and churches denouncing him. And he did it when it cost him something. That, my friends, is courage. Dr. Martin Luther King, to quote him, and I have this in my office, he says, the ultimate measure of a man or woman is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. That's courage. Number four, he lived a life of personal integrity and free of moral scandal. Billy Graham practiced what he preached. You and I know that our American culture Christianity has been rocked by the very opposite of this. For his years of ministry, whatever that is, 60 some odd years of ministry, there, were, there are no scandals personal, professional, organizationally attached to him. He routinely preached and said, quote, if evil were not made to appear attractive, there would be no such thing as a temptation. He knew first and foremost that he was a sinner needing the grace of God. He knew he was not perfect. And that's part of that humility that comes out in his life. It's no secret that oftentimes when he would go to cities or places, he would have people that would go in ahead of time and check the hotel rooms and make sure that there was nothing there or there was no setup of being on an elevator. Because don't you think what a fish that would be to catch Billy Graham in a moral compromising situation, right? He was aware that this is an evil world and there are people that that would want to see his demise and so he took cautions. In fact, even back in the 50s, before any of this really was talked about, he put together a group of evangelists that came up with what was called the Modesto Manifesto. I assume that's Modesto, California where they met, right? And they agreed on principles that had to do with integrity concerning Uh, conduct of ministers, of financial dealings. Billy Graham never was in charge of his own money and organization. He put together a team of people, and this isn't really something I have as a point, but it's worth mentioning. One of the characteristics of, of a great leader is the team that they put together is still a team with them 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. I've known pastors that have more staff changes Yearly. You know what that tells me? There's a problem with that pastor. He cannot work with people. There's an issue there. I admire people that put together a team, and not just a bunch of yes men, okay? People that will say, hey, this, is not, this isn't right. We need to change this. That was the kind of man he was, and he listened to them. Proverbs says, honesty guides good people. Dishonesty destroys treacherous people. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.16. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear that if people speak against you, they will be ashamed, listen, when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. He was a man of personal integrity. Fifth, he was committed to the authority of the Bible. He was committed to the authority of Scripture. 
Again, he did not believe that truth was relative. It was up for grabs. He actually believed that God had spoken in a word and that this word was a revelation of his will and that this word had authority and it was without error and it was without uh, 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 things that, that we could distrust. Have you ever heard him preach? One of the things that you always heard when he preached is he always said, and he held that Bible in his hand, he said, the Bible says. The Bible says. What was he doing? He was saying, this isn't my opinion. This isn't my thoughts. This is the authority of the Word of God. My authority and your authority is only as good as the authority that we are under as believers when we speak the Word of God. It was a familiar phrase that he used. He seldom stood behind the pulpit and offered his opinions. He refrained from opining on politics that sucks in so many ministers and compromises their ministry. He might have joked about sports, but he preached Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. He was grounded in the gospel. He was grounded in the gospel. Why? Because he was grounded in the Bible. He understood that all Scripture the NIV says, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The sixth principle is that he demonstrated the love of God by the way he loved people. It's one thing to get up and talk about loving people, but it's a whole other thing to demonstrate it by the way you act. Graham never saw people as the enemy. He never saw different people that disagreed with him as the enemy. We live in a very we live in an age in which that's we we just that civil discourse is just kind of a thing of the past. We divide people up into us and them, right? You mean do I need to turn the air on? It's is it warm in here to anybody? Because y'all are getting dozy on me, and I will just preach longer, people, if you do that, all right? So uh, I don't want you sleeping on me, right? Is that, because I see some of you waving, you know, the, we need to get like those uh, churches when I was a kid. They had the little paint stick on the back of a thing, you know, a little wave. Some churches, I'd have a group of ladies up here fanning me, you know, some of our African-American churches, maybe. No, don't do that. I actually one time preached with a guy at a church. Uh, Chris, you'd appreciate this. And the whole time I preached, my armor bearer stood behind me. Now, that was a little uncomfortable, and it was a little church in Missouri. I thought, is there a lot of, is there a lot of threats on preachers' lives that have to have an armor bearer? You know, we do crazy stuff, don't we? Where was I? Help me, Jesus. <laughs> he was a lover of people, and he stayed on track with his notes, right? He showed the love of God. Listen to what Peter said. I quoted 1 Peter 3. 16, listen to what 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, rever Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you, that you have. But he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. We need to remember that Everyone is an image bearer of their creator, regardless of whether you agree, disagree, whatever. They're all image bearers of God. Billy Graham had a way, and I think that's why even people that wouldn't necessarily, you know, totally embrace everything uh, that we might and that he might, but 
they recognized here was somebody who demonstrated the love of God that when, they, when he talked and they conversed or he was on an interview, that the love of God was demonstrated in the way that he treated them. And I think that's something that we need so much to remember. And the last principle I would highlight, number seven, is that his life, his life is a reminder of what God can do when we say yes to Jesus. His life is a reminder of what God can do when we say yes to Jesus. That's obedience, right? That's obedience. Uh, He would often say, there are far better preachers than I am, but yet in spite of that, God used Billy Graham above them all. Why? Here I believe this is a key, because God does not need an orator as much as he needs a surrendered servant. Billy Graham surrendered. When he gave his life to Christ, he gave his whole life to Christ. He said yes, not to just Jesus as my Savior, but he said yes to Jesus as my Lord. You know what Lord is? It means master. It means the one in charge. We tend to, you know, in our struggle, sometimes we want to negotiate with God a little bit. You know, we, we're like, you know, God, hey, I, uh, I, I'll follow you, but, uh, uh, you know, here, here, here's, a little, here's a little list of some things that I'm really not into. I don't want to travel overseas. I, I really want kind of a, a nice little cushion income. I like a 401k. That would be nice. Um, you know, I don't want to be around needy people. I want people just to love me and serve me. And, uh, you know, God, if you could kind of accommodate me, I would really appreciate that, Lord. Here, here you go, Jesus. You know what Jesus does with our lists? Right? He's not interested in your lists. Here, Jesus says, here's a blank sheet of paper. Blank sheet of paper, what am I to do with that? You sign at the bottom, and I'll fill in the top. That's what lordship is. Billy Graham understood what it was to make Jesus lord of his life. But you ever wonder, how was it or who was it that shared the gospel with Billy Graham? I think I've told this story here, but it's worth repeating. Um, Actually, as I said, in 1934, that's when he came to faith in Christ at a tent revival. And, but yet, if you go back, there's a series of key events that lead up to that. And it actually begins in 1855 with a Sunday school t- teacher by the name of Edward Kimball. Now, we're not celebrating Edward Kimball's life. There won't be an Edward Kimball Sunday. There won't be Edward Kimball's picture on the bulletin. We, don't, we wonder, who is this guy? Edward Kimball was concerned about one of his young students. Edward Kimball was a businessman, and he taught Sunday school. And one day he felt compelled to reach out to one of his young students that he was concerned about their salvation, about their relationship with Christ. And so he knew that this young man worked in a local shoe store in Chicago And one day on his lunch, Kimball found him in the store. He was in the back stocking shelves. And in that conversation on April 21st, 1855, Edward Kimball led a young Dwight L. Moody to faith in Christ. 
Now, we know a little bit. If you don't know anything about Moody, look him up sometime. It's more than a radio station and a Bible college, all right? Dwight L. Moody was used in an impactful way as God began to birth in him preaching the gospel. And through Dwight L. Moody's ministry that started in Chicago and eventually spread to America and different parts of America and overseas, um, people were coming to Christ. And one day, he, he, or one period, he took an international trip and went to England, and he preached in a little church there, pastored by a, a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer. And in his sermon, Moody told an emotionally charged story about that Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, who was burdened for his salvation and how we should be burdened for the students in our church, in our classes. And and this pastor, Meyer, was so inspired, he prayed that he would become an evangelist like Dwight L. Moody. And Meyer eventually did that. He began to preach the gospel to thousands of people in England and one day came over to the United States where there were some appointments and connections in uh, Massachusetts. And Meyer said, if you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? I like that. Are you at least willing to be made willing, right? That's a good thing. And that remark, there was somebody sitting in the audience by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman, and he was already saved, but he responded to the call of obedience and was so inspired by Meyer that he himself dedicated his life to become an evangelist and preach the gospel. And so J. Wilbur Chapman, around the early 1900s, became again, he was kind of a Billy Graham of his generation and began to preach large crusades and, and see people saved. And he had a volunteer in his organization that was a former baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, he, uh, he was inspired and wanted to follow in J. Wilbur Chapman's steps and become an evangelist. And if you know anything about that, Billy Sunday, he himself became a great evangelist and had crusades and led many people to Christ and saw people come to saving faith. And one time he came to Charlotte, North Carolina in 1924, and there was a great revival there. And in 1934, some of the businessmen decided, you know, we really need to have that kind of revival here again. Who can we bring to kind of rekindle what we saw 10 years ago happen in our city? And the evangelist that was kind of well-known and popular that God was really using in a dramatic way was by the name of Mordecai Ham. Now, you won't forget that name, will you? Mordecai Ham, right? And in 1934, Mordecai Ham had a massive tent, set up a revival there out in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a lanky 16-year-old started going that night and was just intrigued every night. Always felt like that guy's fingers were pointing right at him. And maybe the third or fourth night, Billy Graham gave his life to Christ. Now, where did it start? Because of an unknown Sunday school teacher that was obedient to share the gospel with a student. You see, we never know what can happen when we're faithful to God. You heard the saying that says you can count the apples on a tree, but only God knows how many apples are in a single seed. Imagine the seed of the gospel when we're faithful and planting that. I want to show you this video. It's maybe three and a half minutes or so. And uh, this is, uh, I believe, 1986. Billy Graham was 
I mean, he was, in his, he was always in his prime, but he was really in his prime. And, I, and this is uh, just a short clip from Tallahassee, Florida, at a, uh, a crusade there that was in Tallahassee. And uh, I want you just to let Billy Graham close this service with, with what he did so well and draw our attention to Christ. Let's play that. Check your audio. Now, you can't change your past, but you can determine your destiny by deciding for Christ. But Christ can change your past. He died on the cross so that all the sins you've ever committed, all the things you've ever done wrong are forgiven. What do you have to do? You have to repent of your sins. That means to be willing to change your way of living. You may have no power to do it. You may not have power to give up some of those habits you know are wrong. You may not have power to fall in love with your wife again. You may not have power to change your whole life that you know needs to be changed. But if you surrender to Christ, he'll give you the power. You say, well, Billy, I don't know what else to do. I've been baptized. I joined the church and so forth. But I don't really have peace and joy and power in my life, all that you're talking about. How do I get it? Jesus Christ said, I am the way. Come to Christ. He will give you a new strength and a new power and a new joy and a new peace and a purpose for living. Every person that ever lived has to make the same choice. It's either the world and its pleasures and its gods or it's Christ. Which is it for you? Who are you choosing? Who are you voting for? Choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Oh, yes, there's pleasure in sin for a short time. But it's soon over. The hangover comes. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to be there. Choose Christ. And there'll never be a hangover except joy and peace. And it's an urgent decision because to delay makes the right decision harder. Indecision in itself is a choice. Not to decide is to decide not to. If you have a ticket for a flight to Atlanta tonight and can't decide whether to go or not, if you wait past the departure time, the choice will have been made. The plane will take off without you. Decisions are made whether we make them or not. Time decides if you will not. And time always decides against you. There's a lonely arena in the depths of your heart where the greatest battle of life must be fought alone. That's your decision about Christ. Your parents can't make it for you. The church can't make it for you. Your friends can't make it for you. Your girlfriend, your boyfriend can't make it for you. You have to make it yourself. And you must decide tonight. There are hundreds of people here tonight that have to decide tonight. And your decision tonight, yes or no, will decide where you'll be a hundred years from now. If you're not sure that you're ready to meet God, if you're not sure you're going to heaven and you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, you come and make sure tonight. I believe that none of you are here by accident tonight. I believe that you're here on this particular night because this is the night that you are to meet God in a new way and receive him into your heart. Amen. <clears throat> I had a hard time picking because so many were so compelling. And, uh, but many of you never again saw Dr. Graham and the 
crime, and certainly that was in 1986, but you saw just a little taste of that clear, unambiguous call to respond to Christ. And part of the reason showing that, I would even encourage you even to go on their Billy Graham website, and there's several others right now, but is it also inspires you to be a person who shares the love of God. Cultivate a renewed desire for the gospel. Not just to know about the gospel. Not just to theologically understand the intricacies of the gospel. But to be one who tells others. If you had a cure for cancer, it would be criminal to keep it to yourself. There's a cure for an eternal cancer called sin, and it's Jesus Christ. Let's stand. We're going to sing the hymn that was always sung at a Billy Graham crusade. In 1999, I was in Chicago pastoring, and he was going to have a crusade in 1999 in Indianapolis. And my boys were maybe nine and seven-ish, eight or six, somewhere in there. And we drove, the three of us drove to Indianapolis, got a hotel room, and attended that crusade in Indianapolis in 1999 because one, and mainly because I had an understanding that this was a titan of church history. And I wanted those boys to say, I remember, I remember my dad took me to hear that great man. Are we worshiping heroes? No. But folks, we need heroes in our culture. It's not Black Panther and Superman and Batman and all that. That's fun. That's fun. But that's fantasy. We need heroes that we can honor. And so we're going to sing the first, and I think, well, whatever they decide. But uh, of just as I am. So the words are on the screen. This is not a performance. This is leading you in singing, okay? Big difference. So stand to your feet if you possibly can, and let's sing this. And let me just say this one thing before I close. This is an invitation. This is an invitation. Everybody that Jesus called to respond to the gospel, he called them publicly. Do you hear what I'm saying? He called them publicly. You're not saved by walking an aisle. You're saved because you receive him and make that decision by God's grace and mercy in your own life. But there's something about action to words. Husbands, how does it work when you say, well, she knows I love her. I don't have to say it. How well does that work for you? Not much. The bank. I don't need to sign that. You know I'm good for it, guys. No, we want ink on paper, right? There's something sometimes about just responding. And this morning, it may be a response of a renewed sense that I want to be more consistent and loving in sharing the gospel, of talking about Jesus 
anywhere, anytime, as the Holy Spirit directs and leads. I want to be more faithful in that. It may just be a response of a renewed commitment. It might be a response of just saying, you know what? I'm not sure that I'm sure, but I want somebody to pray for me just to, just to make sure that's sealed. And maybe you're like two ladies here this morning, a few weeks back, who had the courage to walk to the front and give me the privilege to pray for them to receive Christ for the first time in their life. So whatever that is, this is your time. This is a safe time, okay? Nobody's here is your enemy. And you know what? They're going to be singing and worshiping the Lord. They're going to be standing and focused on Christ. And so I'll be down here at the front, and you come and let me pray, however God leads you this morning and direct.